Good evening, everyone. It's that Williams guy here for First Person Safety, and I'm joined tonight by Morgan Ballas. Uh, Morgan, if you would, please introduce yourself to our audience. Haley, thank you so much uh, for having me. Uh, my name is Morgan Ballas. I run a uh, firearms training company out of San Diego County called Defensive Tactics and Firearms. Um, but I also run an emergency management consulting firm, uh, Campus Safety Alliance. So we support uh, really all sectors. We primarily support K-12 schools and their law enforcement partners in building evidence-based school safety programs. I'm also a nationally certified law enforcement trainer, primarily focused in supporting law enforcement in active killer response and solo officer response um, and uh, really just supporting uh, private citizens and, and law enforcement uh, wherever they need that support. Holy smokes, did you say San Diego County as in California? Yes, uh, but our, our family recently relocated to Idaho. So <laughs> we made it to some free country, originally from Tucson, Arizona. Um, but yes, I, I was in the Marines for 11 years, got out of the Marines and, and was just absolutely blessed to have a thriving and successful um, firearms training company now run by the instructor Shane. Um, he's our, our uh, chief instructor out there now. And I've kind of um, faded back into the shadows a little bit as I focus more on the consulting end. There you go. I just I had to poke a little fun about there being a firearms training business in California because that's just, oh, it, you know. it is booming. We're, we're doing great. We are blessed. Outstanding. Uh, you mentioned evidence-based training in your intro there. Explain to our, our audience, what do you mean by evidence-based or evidence-driven curriculum? Um, so when we look at um, evidence-based, oh, there we go. <laughs> Can I, uh, I'm recording this right now. <laughs> Go downstairs. Um, I'm also a dad. Yeah, as we can see. Uh, that was, that was Miss Isley Sage making a cameo appearance. appearance. Yeah. Um, so um, when I, when, you know, I was, I was an infantry Marine. So on, on top of eating crayons, um, uh, you know, we just, we went in heavy with a hammer on, on everything. And as I transitioned out of the Marines, uh, I, I started to uh, get back into school and um, ended up getting my master's in emergency management. I'm currently three years into my, my PhD in the same field. And I started to, as I, as I really dove into the academic world, I started to see as a trainer, a lot of the times in my own curriculum, I was creating curriculum around what I wanted to be right versus what the actual data or evidence um, suggested we, we should be doing. So when we talk about evidence-based, what we talk about is looking at scientific data that is available, um, really what's known as empirical evidence. So it's kind of the totality of evidence that's available, whether it's actual scientific studies, um, whether it's looking at case studies and, and dissecting them um, on the back end, um, or actually going out there and testing theories ourselves. I, I think probably the most relative theory that anyone in the firearms industry at least is aware of is the, the Tuller concept. And it, it's a perfect example of using science and evidence um, to drive our training and our programs and, and our mindset as well. All right. Um, can you give an example of you, you talked about their people looking for evidence of what they want to believe 
versus what is actually true. Uh, give a practical example for our audience. Yeah, I think we can. Um, so for me personally, com- coming out of the Marine Corps, you know, it is very much um, mass production of, of shooters, right? Unless you start to get into some of those kind of more unique units, um, like in the reconnaissance field and, and things of that nature that have the time to really devote to the training and craft, like truly devote the time to it. It's a very mass production, especially when we talk about firearms qualification. So what that means is a lot of times it is, hey, here's how we're going to tell you how to do something versus adjusting or taking a position of looking at individual shooters and what might be more right for them. So shooting with both eyes open might be a great example of where you have a very dogmatic approach of this is the only way that you are going to shoot. Um, shooting from the isosceles position. I remember having this fight even while I was still serving. Uh, You have to stand exactly this way while you're going through my range. And I remember just stepping back and just asking the question like, well, what, what is the primary purpose of what we're doing here, right? Is it for me to win the fight and shoot this guy before he shoots me and end that threat? Or is it for me to just look and kind of conform to what you want and what is comfortable for you as the instructor, um, what is right for you might not be right for me. So I think those are some some kind of general ones that we see. I think with the emergence of red dots, I think we're starting to see some people on both sides of the fence um, on, on whether um, you know we, we should be moving towards red dots or what are the possible failure rates of red dots. I think these are all um, great questions we should be asking. I think what we need to avoid as instructors is taking that true dogmatic approach and saying, this is the only way of doing something. I think that's where we start to get into a lot of trouble. Are there any, you know, I'm trying to think of my term here, any things that are being put out as far as universal truths, as far as tactics, other than say technical skill, but um, you know, Claiming that you know certain percentages of fights are going to be ground fights for the weapon, or you know certain instances are going to happen in low light versus hours of darkness. Any of those things that you're finding in your research that are either being confirmed or proven untrue? Yeah, I, I think that th- those are great questions, and I think those are exactly the questions we ask when we're developing our our curriculum. Um, let me give you a good example in more of like the Second Amendment debate, right? Okay. Uh, we, we see across the United States, and this has been true for a couple of decades now, that the, the murder rate or the homicide rate rather had, has gone down, right? So I could take that information as someone that supports the Second Amendment and say, look, it's because more people are armed. We have more firearms. We have more CCW permits. And therefore, especially in those jurisdictions that do allow those things, um, there's a direct correlation to the reduction of homicides. Well, that, that would be only half the story, right? Because we'd have to look at other factors that have happened over the past two decades, such as the increase in emergency response, the increase in, in um, um, medical technology, the increase of training of both civilians and EMTs. Um, I remember in 2004, 2005, when I was first in the Marine Corps and we we were just starting to deploy over to Iraq, um, we would send Marines to EMT school and they stopped sending them because 
the EMT school was 100% against the use of tourniquets, would not teach it, and it contradicted what we were doing overseas. Well, of course, we know that that's not true anymore, right? So that would be an example of where I'm looking for information that conforms to what I want to be true, that confirmation bias that we're talking about. Um, Neil deGrasse uh, Tyson, who is a world-renowned um, physicist and, and scientist, I was listening to a master class of his, and he says, um, Google is the epitome of confirmation bias, right? And it's so true because whatever you type in, it's going to give you whatever you want. Um, and if I'm being honest, this has been a, a challenge for me in, in the academic world. Um, assumptions are important. It's okay to have assumptions. That's what drives qualitative research is you assume something or you think something might be true and you're trying to figure out whether or not it is. The, the, the hard part is, are you going to be willing to accept something that goes against what your personal truth is? And that's where we have a responsibility as trainers to make sure that we're not creating curriculum on what we want to be true, because that could cost someone their life. It could cost someone their livelihood, their freedom. Um, and we have a responsibility to make sure that we're being honest with ourselves and our curriculum development. Well, what advice would you give to trainers who are wanting to do valid research and you know, to make sure they're not falling into the, the confirmation bias pitfall? Yeah, fantastic question. I think um, networking honestly with, with other professionals with, within the industry. Um, I, I think I use the word professionals very lightly as we know that <laughs> our industry doesn't truly have a professional standard, right? Um, and, and there's definitely groups out there. I think once you start to get into kind of that next level and that higher tier of, of instructing, you know, your, your, your range master instructors, your mag deadly force, when you start to get into those groups, you start to see the difference. Um, I wish I could remember the gentleman's name, but there was a post the other day on the range master instructor and it said, hey, I have this um, this new, uh, he didn't call it, call it this new drill that I'm running. And I would like 30 or 40 of you to run it and tell me what your times are. And I just sat back and I'm like, God, that's beautiful. What an amazing thing that one, he's so comfortable to do that, but two, to be surrounded by a group of like-minded individuals that want to support, that want to um, increase the research within our field. And um, again, going back to Dennis Tuller and that, that Tuller theory, that kind of, that, that's the standard we need to have, right? And then we also need to dissect it. It's, it's, it's been what, for 30, 40 years, I think, since his original research. So like, what are the implications now? How has it changed? How might it be different for different demographics? Of course, he was using law enforcement officers as his base. So what might our subpopulation look like? Um, so I, I think that's important is to have other individuals that you can kind of have a check with and being vulnerable, right? That that's probably the hardest part <laughs> is to be vulnerable, especially as men, especially men in the firearms industry, because God knows it is, it is dog eat dog out here. Right. Um, and um, it, it's hard to be vulnerable. Um, but, you know, I, I think in a lot of cases, we have instances of an event, right? A, a lot of times it, it might be around like a, a mass murder incident or an active shooter incident. And we, we look at those individual cases and we see what we want to see. Um, 
in 2011, my, my mom was standing next to Congresswoman Giffords when she was shot. She was literally at the table. I went to high school with the shooter, and that's what got me kind of down the path that I am now. And I remember first looking at it through a Marine, Marine's lens, right? Like, what would I have done? What would have worked? What wouldn't have worked? And as I started to really dive into the research, and, and that's what I do now, is I specifically, my entire career has been spent studying these uh, mass murder incidents, is... Um, I had to really step back and I had to get out of my own feelings to be able to, to get to that objective truth. Um, so not cherry picking case studies, specifically looking for case studies or incidents that actually counter what you think to be real. If I'm writing an academic paper, it's actually one of the, the things I must do is I must look for opposing research. And, and sometimes that opposing research gets you rewriting your whole paper, right? right? Or, or your final conclusions are different or the uh, recommendations or suggestions. So um, it's hard, man, being humble, just being humble and saying, look, it, I'm, I'm an open book. I truly am. I, I want to hear what you say. And um, I want to be able to take that in and, and reasonably come to a conclusion that's um, supported by, by evidence in the data. All right. You know, the, the active killer, uh, which, whichever label anyone wants to apply to it, but the active yeah. killer question tends to be one of those hot button questions and you know be it people trying to drive people to their classes or to push uh, uh, certain beliefs what are you finding in your research that's that is a predominant theory that is just proving not to be true if anything um, yeah i i think a a couple of things I, I think most of us that have done any just even cursory research on the topic know a few of these the first is that overwhelmingly handguns are, are the most dominant firearm used in in mass shootings not just mass shootings but specifically active shooter um, um, events so the the idea that you know rifles are specifically a semi-automatic rifle like an ar is the predominantly one used it's just not true there's zero evidence that supports that there is evidence however that suggests that ar platforms do increase the lethality of these incidents. So that's something that we have to be honest with, with ourselves as well. And we have to be willing to accept that evidence for what it is. Um, another thing that I think is an extremely important is that, that we need to understand, especially when it comes to school active shooter events, is that nearly 80% of the firearms used in school active shooter events that are used by assailants that are under the age of 18 or 21 to legally purchase those firearms they're stolen or taken from their home or the home of a friend or family member. What that tells me as a responsible gun owner is that we have the ability to essentially prevent 80% of these attacks or at least mitigate their ability to get a hold of the firearms that they use. And that's a tough conversation to have. And the reason that's a tough conversation is because not a single parent looks at their child and says, my child could not is capable of this um and it's something that we have to understand that you know what uh, any child truly is capable of this and, and we've seen it across the spectrum um and I, I think anyone that has had the unfortunate experience of dealing with a close friend or family member that has taken their own life can reflect and say well god i never saw that coming um so 
With that being said, I, I think that the, the data definitely suggests that we have a responsibility as gun owners to do our part in mitigating or even preventing these, these incidents from happening by simply locking up our guns. I mean, it, it's just, it's such a simple thing to do, um, but it, it's a tough conversation. And um, so that's definitely something. For those shooters that aren't getting, or those killers that aren't getting the firearms from those sources, where are they getting them? Um, as we start to see, especially in the school active shooter events, as we start to see people becoming of the legal age to purchase their own firearms, whether that's 18 or, or 21, um, that, that's where they're getting them, is that they, they are purchasing uh, them legally. And we also tend to see, especially in school active shooter events, an increase in lethality as those people are able to legally purchase, because then they're able to train um, and become more proficient with their firearms as well. So there is a strong correlation there. Um, but then that brings up the whole other conversation is, it, you know, on, on some of these individuals, there is clear indications of mental health, suicide attempts, of, of any number of incidents, and Parkland's probably the best example, where that person should have been a prohibited possessor just way back, like even before he turned 18. There were so many opportunities um, whether it was through the mental health route or whether it was through law enforcement intervention where he never should have been able to legally purchase a firearm. Could he have still carried out the attack? Could he have illegally gotten a firearm? Of, of course, any of those things are possibilities. Um, but those for those um, that are conducting the attacks, especially for school shooters, they're, um, if they're not taking them from their home, they, they tend to be able to purchase them legally as they become of the legal age. And just to clarify, we are talking about that subset of the so-called active killer mass casualty event, not so-called street level crime. Yeah, yeah. And you know what, that's a, another big thing with, with the research. And we see this more on the other side of the aisle, right? They use terms like gun violence or mass shootings. And the first thing I do is, is I look and I say, okay, well, what is your definition of gun violence or mass shootings? And of course, uh, many times in um, the Brady campaign and, and Moms Demand Action, Sandy Hook Promise, they literally create their own definition of mass shooting. And what does that mean? That means it inflates the number because they're including self-harm. They're including legitimate acts of self-defense involving a fire. They're including the use of air rifles or accidental discharges in these shootings that occur. Um, and or, or especially with the term gun violence, right? So it inflates the number. And honestly, what it does is it actually stops us from getting towards a common sense or common ground solution, because now we're all distracted by all these numbers that, that really aren't relevant to what we're trying to talk about. Um, and then also to your point, when we look at mass shootings, or if we look at um, crimes involving firearms within inner cities, that is much different than the active shooter phenomenon. Um, and I tend to use the FBI's definition, I, I think is the best definition to, for consistency, but um, those are much different phenomenons with underlying contributors and influencers, right? So again, it, it distracts us from, from really getting to, to a solution when we just lump everything involving a gun together. If I remember correctly, the FBI definition is three or more. Uh, for a, a mass shooting, it's three or more for an active shooter. It's um, individual or individuals actively engaged in killing or attempting to kill people in a populated area. Um, but also, for being honest, 
we're actually losing a lot of case studies, right? And that's why, you know, you and I have been using the term active killer or mass murder incident. And that's because the weapon then doesn't matter. It's the intent, right. which is death and destruction. So, um, you know, there's even limitations. And, and again, as, as, and I didn't really learn this until I got into the academic realm is you have to identify those limitations, Right. So if I'm if I'm doing an active shooter, you know, whether it's it's a if I'm speaking at a conference or if I'm, you know, giving some sort of class, I'll say, hey, here's the FBI's definition. But here's the limitations. We don't get to talk about knife attacks or vehicles. However, the mindset and the response that I want to instill is going to be consistent across whether or not they're, they're using those different weapons. Yeah, I always try to make the distinction of when people put the qualifier on it, that it's gun violence. So you're okay with hammer violence. Right. Yeah. You know, so if he bludgeoned him to death, you wouldn't have a problem with that. Yeah. So, and then, oh, no, no, I I will be upset about that. Well, then, so you're upset with violence. Yeah. You know, regardless, you're focusing on the implement. Why don't we focus on the act? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, And then the other thing um, you asked about, you know, what are some things we're seeing about the data, especially in school active shooter events, but this remains consistent across all active shooter, active killer event is that um, victim resistance highly influences the outcome of that event. If someone is making the personal decision to resist that attacker in, in, in some way, shape, or form, even if they don't ultimately defeat that threat, um, we see a reduction in both the number and types of, of casualties, especially if they're successful. And when we're training law enforcement, you know, that's something we train them with is that, look, you have to understand that as soon as you insert yourself and you make contact in any way, shape, or form, whether it's verbally or if they visually see you or if you're actually engaging them, consistently, overwhelmingly, what we see is there's no more victimization of, of civilians after that point of, um, of that officer making contact. So, uh, but we have to be careful not to take that too far because what we might say then is, well, then we should arm every teacher, everyone should be armed in, in every place. And I'm as pro second amendment as they come, but that's not the only answer, right? Right. arming everyone is not going to solve the problem that's it that's a reactive measure right that, that's not getting at the the root of the issue um so we have to be careful not not to only look for for what we want to be true um again not only in our own uh, curriculum development but also how we're phrasing these conversations you know i've been around toting a badge long enough that i've seen multiple paradigm shifts in the in the what is the so-called best practices response to such instances i was actually a rookie just out of the academy in field training when columbine occurred Hmm. and yeah while i was in the academy uh, they talked about i think the incident was in a mcdonald's in in california somewhere out west and it was you know while this whole thing was horrible and it happened you know, the proper response to that is to set up a perimeter and call SWAT. Yeah. And of course, how many agencies across the United States actually have a full-time SWAT team ready to respond to those type incidents? And the answer to that is very few. Um, You know, and then of course, Columbine happened and there was the immediate response of, well, we need to teach the forming of four and five man teams to go in and address these situations. Well, that's great, but you know, start setting the stats of how many agencies in the United States are under 10, 10 personnel right. total, total. 
Uh, I don't have the stats in front of me, but I did a research on just my state of Georgia and it did number that of, of agencies that had less than 10 employees, not officers, employees yeah. was under 10 what was dramatic. They don't have five people working to form that fire team and right. go in. And so then, you know, the paradigm has now finally shifted to, we have to immediately go in and stop the threat. Yeah. And uh, go ahead. Yeah, I'll just, I'll tell you as a trainer that, that we say that and anywhere you go, they'll say that. But I, I think you and I both know that's absolutely just, it's just not the truth. I, I just did um, some expert witness work for a, one of the largest police unions in the United States who their union was suing the department for better active shooter training. Um, and it's, you know, we like to talk about solo officer response um, and the mindset that, you know, they should go in. And it's not that they should go into every single situation. That's, we're not right. making a blanket statement, right. but we want them to be mentally prepared and physically equipped um, to be able to confidently um, end that threat if they need to. But um, it's just one of those things that just, it, it doesn't happen. And um, of course there, there's logistical and, and financial restraints on any department and we have to weigh the likelihood of event versus the resources we're going to commit to training for that event. But we also have to look at the consequences. And we know that these events have higher consequences because that's the intent of the assailant. Um, so it, it's finding out a way to strike that balance, whether it's for a department or if I'm out there as an instructor, you know, training civilians or security ministries. I, I just need to make sure that I'm, I'm striking that balance between preparing for the unthinkable, but but not to the point where it's all consuming. Well, is there anything about confirmation bias or the the uh, active shooter topic that I didn't ask you about that I should have? Well, oh, we we could <laughs> we could keep going. We could definitely keep going. Um, uh, I you know I and, and this is just. Again, it's so hard to do, and, and I am by no means perfect at this. It's something that I, I have to consciously do. But I think if we, in anything that we do, really, but I'll, I'll make it specific to developing our curriculum as firearms trainers, if if we kind of step back, if we ever get to a point and, and if we ever feel like, man, this is the way, this is the only way I think should, people should be doing something. I don't care if it's grip or, or stance or, or bigger concepts. I think that's when you really need to step back. And I think you need to step back and say, okay, truly what are the pros and cons of what I'm trying to um, impart on my students or better yet, take the completely opposite position and actually articulate why that position is better than what you're trying to do. And I think there's a difference between this is the only way and this is our way, right? I'm, I'm okay with, with your way. Um, as long as you're willing to recognize the pros and cons of whatever your way is. And maybe your, your way is driven by safety considerations or range restrictions, completely okay, right? Um, but you need to identify that with your students. I've, I've been in a number of classes where they just would not let me appendix carry. And I asked them why, and they, well, it's, it's not safe. It's not fast. It's not this, it's not that. And it's like, man, that's, that's not universally true, right? So, um, yeah, I, I think just being honest with ourselves and, and, and taking a, a step back. Um, and I've, I've constantly been challenged over, you know, my, my past five years specifically, actually going on six years now of specifically training 
civilians and running my own firearms training company is I learned something new and that becomes my new kind of shiny thing, right? And then I network with instructors like yourself and other instructors and I hear someone specifically talk about, you know, you should never do this or you shouldn't do this. And I'm like, wait, why? And then I hear a new perspective and I'm like, okay, I can, I can see that. Um, I've had students that I've trained over multiple years where they'll come back to train me and I'll say, um, you know, I'll just go ahead and admit it now. I was teaching the, 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 um, the trigger trap, man. I was for, for a while there. I was like, man, this is great. It's, it's getting them to understand and, and to, you know, get that trigger reset that I want. And then I started to unteach it. And I had students saying, wait, you're the one that taught me to do that. And I said, you know what? <laughs> I messed that up and I'm sorry. And I'm here growing with you. Um, and I think it's just being honest in things like that. Sometimes we hold on to something because we're professionally embarrassed or our pride gets in the way, but that's not what it's about. It's about getting my students back home to their family, making sure that they hold on to that house and that, that college tuition that they invested in and, and keeping them um, out of you know, that, that legal trouble and out of jail. That's my, that's my responsibility to them. So I need to constantly be checking myself and everything that I do to make sure that I'm helping them achieve those goals. All right, Morgan, if you would tell our, our audience about your organization and uh, where people can find you if they want to find out more about you on the internet. Yeah, if you're looking for support um, with you know the emergency management side or active shooter um, training, whether that's uh, for your, your business or your school or for your um, faith-based organization, you can find us at campus-safety.us. If you're out in the San Diego um, Riverside area and you're looking to do some training or instructor development, you can find us at defensivetacticsandfirearms.com. Everything is spelled out because you know what? Your first business, you live and you learn. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, Lee, thank you so much for having me. And, and thank you so much for, for what you do. It's such an important part of um, what we talked about earlier, that networking and just checking yourself and, and staying in touch with other instructors. Well, thank you. And thank you for coming on the show tonight. And it dawned on me last week that I had a show when people kept telling me, you know, with the show on, when are you going to put the podcast up? Like, podcast? I didn't realize I had a podcast. I've just been talking to people online, letting other people listen in. <laughs> and uh, so as of last week, all of the audio from the previous interviews is up available on uh, basically all the, you know, the podcast platforms. If you look, search for that Weems guy, uh, you'll find the audio from all the previous interviews. And this interview will upload to YouTube as well as um, to the podcast format. So it'll be available for you to listen to in drive time. And yeah. so, uh, everyone, I appreciate your time and choosing to uh, spend a little bit of time with, with Morgan and myself. And I'm that Weems guy for first person safety. Good night.